I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Cindy Warner, senior vice president at NetApp, has a career in technology that spans over 30 years. We talked about various technology transformations that have happened throughout her career. Cindy explained how data and data analysis became fundamental to businesses. We also talked about the process of building software, data services, and the ethical side of data. Cindy Warner is joining us today. Cindy, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about various topics like the tech transformation, data services, and among many other things, your career in technology spans over 30 years, and you've held executive positions on technology teams at Salesforce, FedEx, Ernst & Young, among many others. Throughout your career, what are some technology transformations that, that you witness or something that stands out from being in technology for 30 years? Yeah, I would say the number one thing is that years ago, and when I say years ago, probably more like decades ago, we felt like I, um, I actually was functioning in the role of a consultant during the years at Ernst & Young, as an example, in the CRM space, so in the customer relationship management space. And we used to tell clients it's all about the data, that you know they should put high value on the data, that the data was really something that could liberate their business, give them predictability, the whole nine yards. We had a really hard time getting people to believe us, to spend much time on data, to understand the value, to you know harmonize data. Most companies at that time, and again, decades ago, most companies at that time felt like data was a liability, that it was kind of a pain, that they had to protect it, but they didn't really use it. They didn't get a lot of insights from it. And today, as, as I think you well know, data, you know, as, as uh, Ginny Rometty always says uh, at IBM, data is the new oil. And it is really what uh, transforms everything that companies are doing today, both their business models as well as their insightfulness and their predictability, what have you. So I would simply say that transformation of how data was marginalized, you know, call it two decades ago, to how it's monetized today is probably the biggest shift I've seen in my entire career. What are some of the reasons why you think this shift happened? I think a couple of things. First of all, I think the downturn in 2008, 9, and 10, where many, many, many companies had very substantial financial issues, including but notwithstanding bankruptcy. I was doing a lot of bankruptcy and insolvency consulting then. And what we found is that people always said to us, if only I had had the data to predict the train before it was going to hit me. And so there was a major acknowledgement during that downturn that companies did not have insights, not data, but insights to have avoided, you know, the very deep trough that many of them went into during that time. Um, so that started people thinking, are we really using this as an asset or are we really viewing it as a liability? And then I think a secondary thing was the simple fact that um, storing data, managing data, became cheaper. So when you look at the cost of storing data, much cheaper. The third thing is the availability of where to store data in any kind of form and fashion. So think, you know, private cloud, public cloud, what have you. It became ubiquitous. And so I think those three things made data become more in vogue. Probably the other mega trend was that 
more devices and more systems are giving off more data. And so companies really had to come to a seminal moment of, are we going to use this as an asset or a liability? And they hearkened back to 08, 09, and 10 and thought, gosh, if only we would have used it then as an asset instead of a liability, we'd be in a different place. And I think there was a lot of muscle memory on on what happened there. So I think all of those things have, have given rise to the value of data and the fact that it is truly the new oil. Your career began with an internship at IBM. And after that, you've transitioned from developer to process analyst, then business analyst, and then strategist. One of the things you've gotten to do later in your career is to work as a technology architect in the enterprise. And from what I read, part of what this means is to match enabling technologies to business problems. To understand the process of this, first I want to understand an example of of a business problem and how we can go about figuring out what technologies are suited for it. Can you walk me through a bit what this looks like? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would say I've had, by any stroke in my own, at least in my own imagination, I've had what I would consider a storied career. And the journey, because it started understanding what it took to, you know, develop an application to solve a business problem, then all the way to a strategist gave, you know, has given me kind of the insight to understand magnitude, scope, and what it really takes to bring or solve a business problem through technology. So I, I'm not short on understanding. It's kind of not a Tabitha nose twinkle on on solving business problems with technology. That said, I would tell you that, you know, a keen example would be today, you look at the automotive industry. I've spent a lot of years working in the automotive industry. And most automotive companies today, inclusive of tier one suppliers, et cetera, would say, they want not to be regarded as an automotive company, but as a mobility company. And who would have thought, and, and I wouldn't have thought in my career or my lifetime that I would have seen an automotive company, you know, change their focus from we're an automotive company that makes and builds cars to we want to solve a need for, you know, both companies and consumers, which is mobility. At the end of the day, it's really about getting from point A to B, whether you're FedEx delivering packages or whether you're Cindy Warner trying to go to the dry cleaners. It's really all about the mobility of getting from place to place and doing something. And in doing so, technology is the way to figure that out, really. And, and data is foundational for that because we have to be able to figure out all of the preferences of either the consumer or the business that's trying to accomplish something, be it I'm trying to do five errands and I need the most efficient and effective way to do that and I need to avoid traffic, et cetera. That's all through technology and through being able to figure out the efficiency and effectiveness through routing and through GPS and what have you. And the same on the business side. I mean, somebody like a FedEx, they make money based on how much time it takes to get from point A to point B, right? That's that's all in the formula for the, the profitability of a package. And so technology is helping them become more efficient and more effective in routing and through using you know GPS and everything else. But it's all about all this data that we can put together. We can look at multidimensional cubes. We can use machine learning and we can put all that data together and understand the most efficient, effective way for people to optimize their mobility, not for them to optimize their automobile. Exactly. And one of the things that really stood out is when you said at the beginning that you're able to do this because you begin your career building software, developing solutions, and then you slowly move to different kinds of roles that build on top of that. And because of this, you're able to have this more global perspective on 
interesting problems that industries like automotive are exploring. When you are working on something like this, what other groups of people are involved? Yeah, so great question because I, you know, even today I still see the build it and they will come mentality in some companies, notwithstanding even sometimes in our own. And I think the biggest challenge for companies is is to really still go out and model the behaviors. You know, we used to call it, and this sounds trite, but we used to call it a day in the life. So what is the day in the life of Susie and all of her mobility needs. She's, you know, a mother of two children that are very active. She's a wife. She's a sister. She's an aunt. She's a, you know, all those things. You know, she's the head of the, you know, the Girl Scout troop. All those things that when you look at all of the personas that Susie has, those all require, as an example, uh, or have mobility needs. And then to model all the needs that she has is kind of the first step in trying to figure out how do I become a mobility company and not an automotive company. Um, it's not just about four wheels that get her to all of those things or that help aid in you know, her duties in all of those personas. And so we still have to remember that the end user, the consumer of these technologies really is, is where we get the requirements to model for this. And I still see in, you know, in a lot of startups where they're still a build it and they will come mentality and they kind of miss the mark on what the consumer, what the business really needed to do and how they needed to do it most efficiently and effectively. So I don't think there's any substitute and I don't think this has ever changed by the way, but I don't think there's any substitute for ensuring that the end user usability, both, you know, the interface with Uh, the tool that we're developing, but also the day in the life is very clearly understood by somebody that's trying to develop new technologies. So what you're saying is that it's it's valuable to get some insight from the real end user, as in if something will be useful for them versus just building a tool and then hoping you'll get users? Yeah, I think so. And honestly, today, And I'm not going to give you some real life examples because that's just kind of indicting, you know, companies or technology. And that's the, that's not the right thing to do. But we continue to see people develop devices as an example or technologies that you kind of shake your head and you go, A, this is not usable or B, who would use this? And the only conclusion you can come to is, did you talk to people? Did you ask people about how this could be used or would be used in their world? And so that's the thing. I, the fact that in this very day, we are still questioning whether anybody consulted with the user and did they really understand. I, I was actually consulting with a company, again, I'll leave nameless, some years back that, you know, was um, developing a tool for the DevOps community. And they're a very technical group of people. But when I looked at the even the user interface, of their dashboard to be able to use this this tool i was like this is the most horrific dashboard i don't understand anything that's on here it's not intuitive at all and the company failed they were in business for about five years they had an amazing technology amazing technology but it was unusable it was truly unusable and it was unusable by a deeply technical group of people the devops folks so i still don't think we're spending enough time on that usability factor and making sure that we understand the day in the life but also the the overall overt usability is really fantastic i see so it sounds like when you're thinking of solutions that you're exploring with with a company or somebody from an industry You involve designers and engineers as well as your potential end user. That's correct. That absolutely is correct. And in that case, in that example that I gave you, the end user was truly, you know, developers or IT ops folks. 
um, highly technical people, but if highly technical people cannot figure out an, a, a technology solution, <laughs> you're really hosed. It's like, holy smokes, you know, that, that just doesn't work very well. So before we talk about NetApp and data services, I wanted to ask you about your your time as an advisor to C-level executives, for example, at GE, Microsoft, HP, Time Warner, DuPont, among others. What are some of the things that you give advice on? Boy, oh boy, that's a meaty question. So a couple of things, um, take a look at one of those companies that you mentioned, they were gonna move to a software as a service platform for all of their enterprise applications. And so we worked through all of the dynamics of what that meant, all the way down to the sales compensation for their sales force, all the systems, the 120 systems that had to be modified to be able to sell their software um, in a SaaS model. And so, you know, it's all about the people process and technology. So the, you know, kind of the whole sphere of those three interlocked to be able to make a transformation happen. I would still simply say, and this has been a hallmark of my career, we spend, while on the development side of hardcore technology, I think we spend too little time on the usability factor and really getting that input. On the transformation within a company, we spend far too little time still today, far too little time thinking about taking people along with us. Um, and so when I talk about people, process, and technology, we can always identify processes that need to be modified You know, when we decide to um, offer our solutions in the SaaS model versus a perpetual license model. That's seemingly easy, the, the tools that need to be modified, the processes. We just really spend less time or little time on taking the people along with us, making sure that they understand the change, they're comfortable with the change, and even more so, even more so that they are part of the change, that their feedback is gathered, that we understand what matters to them. And it's not to say that a transformation should be predicated only on what matters you know, to the people involved in it and the employees involved in it. I just think in this day and age, we've gotten even further away from the human factor that's involved with the transformation because I believe most transformations fail because of the human factor, not because of having the wrong technology or the wrong processes, it's the human factor. People are not bought in, they don't feel part of the solution, they, they almost feel like they're looked at as part of the problem. So to me, in any of the transformations I've ever done for companies, in any of the work with GE and setting up their global growth organization, the GGO organization, all of that was about people. I mean, sure, we had to install systems and everything else, but it was really about the people. And so, you know, I, that sounds trite, but it's probably the best advice that I can give is spend more time on the people and understanding how to get them bought into the transformation. That's most important. Exactly. So it sounds like this advising role involves system building, system design, but also, like you said, one of the main factors is people. You cannot just build a system and then just hope that they'll go on with it and that they'll have daily stand-ups now instead of no stand-ups. Like you said, it takes a lot of effort to to convince people why they might want to change things. You know, I just had my all-hands call, NetApp, uh, just before this, and, and I lead about 2,200 people at NetApp. And we're going through still a very, very large transformation at NetApp. And I said to them today, I said, we have nine work streams that we um, just set up for fiscal year 20, which starts May 1st. And I said, listen, this is going to take a village. This isn't about the 80 senior leaders that just met in San Diego and these nine work streams. This is about 2,200 people. And you've got to get involved. You've got to be part of the solution. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting back feeling part of the problem. And I'm fortunate because our people take that to heart. And I would hazard a guess that 
we will have five to 600 of those 2,200 people actively involved in those nine work streams. And that will aid in our success in the transformation in these nine work streams. But by and large, there are you know many cases, those nine work streams would have five people on a work stream. You've got 45 people that are going to transform the you know, 2,200 people. That never works. It never works. The people just sit back and go, watch this. You know, I'm not bought in, so I'm not going to uh, participate. And, you know, truth be told, people can drag down a transformation. There is no mistaking. Exactly. Well, let's talk about NetApp now. NetApp is a company that provides cloud data services and management. Can you explain more what people are doing at NetApp? Sure. And as I mentioned, you know, a company in great transformation, when you think of the data storage industry, and if you look at, you know, we're 27 years old and you look at that 27 year history from starting with file storage to block storage to object storage now to, you know, cloud data storage, huge transformation over, you know, short time. I mean, less than three decades. There are, you know, what I just mentioned, kind of four major shifts in data storage and the transformation of data storage. And candidly, it's been hard to keep up. I mean, if you think about it, I would tell you the number one thing for us is in our own minds, moving from being a company that provides data storage solutions that are typically product-based to solving business solutions. So go back to my example of the automotive industry. We have a lot of clients in the automotive industry. We need to be able to talk to our clients about the data layer and how does the data that they are storing in their company, that they are managing in their company, um, how does that data move them from being an automotive company to a mobility company? Even more so, what's the architecture, as an example, of their data that they need to transition and change to be able to capture the data necessary to build out, you know, as I sometimes call it, these three-dimensional cubes and these views for consumers and businesses that can tease out the mobility that the consumers and businesses they do business with need. And so we as a company are, you know, are in a journey now to be able to develop solutions for our customers, not sell product. And that is a hard shift for a technology company because we focus on building and selling amazing technology. That's what we do. And so when you think about it, changing it from, hey, I got this product on the truck to, hey, what are your business problems? And here are solutions uh, to be able to solve those business problems that by and large are then supported by products that we sell. That is a big shift. I would tell you today, I don't think our customers care what's behind the curtain. I think if I were to ask, you know, the head of mobility at Ford, who I happen to know, if she cares about what's behind the curtain that NetApp provides to be able to ensure that they become a mobility company, I think she would say, I don't care. I have business needs in moving this company to a mobility company. You figure out what's behind the curtain. I'll tell you my business needs and you figure it out from there. So that's a big shift for a technology company. Exactly. This is really resonating with all that's happening, particularly now in the cloud computing world, where we have people providing the services and the management of servers and things like that, so that your business can focus on the main problems that your business is trying to solve. Like you're mentioning mobility, like you shouldn't need to worry about these other things. There are specialists that are working on that at different companies that that are happy to help you on board with their solutions, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's really about, and, and those technology companies that learn how to identify, address, and solve business problems 
candidly are those that are going to, you know, grow and prosper tremendously. Some of the legacy companies, I obviously have spent quite a bit of time at IBM. I believe that was their biggest shift that they had to make is moving from, I got a whole bunch of products on the truck to my clients have business problems and transformations, digital transformations they're trying to do. How do I solve those transformational problems and then figure out what's behind the curtain afterwards? And I think that's, you know, a huge issue for uh, most technology companies and has not been an easy journey for most of them. And being more involved with learning about the problems that they're trying to solve can also help you build a better product, right? Because you can take some of those, those insights of what they're trying to do. Totally. Absolutely. You know, as an example, um, years and years ago, when I was at Salesforce, one of the things that we said there was that over time, and this has taken much longer, by the way, than I thought it was going to, but, you know, it's taken, uh, gosh, a decade, let's call it. Um, over time, when people end up with this very, very heterogeneous ecosystem they have to manage. So I think most companies have, you know, legacy applications. They're not going anywhere. You know, their client server apps, et cetera. They're using some SaaS applications. They may have deployed a private cloud. When you look at that, that overall architecture, it's becoming very complex, very, very complex. And so, you know, we need to understand the complexity that companies are going to have to entertain. And, and with that complexity, in some cases, comes business risk. You know, they've got to be able to manage the business risk. The business risk even comes in the form of, you know, in today's world, consumer data privacy. Managing that data that we're using on behalf of a consumer for an automotive company to become a mobility company, there's a whole bunch of consumer data there. And there's a whole bunch of consumer data that I think, you know, Susie, you know, head of the Girl Scouts troop, doesn't want all of her personal data to be shared with the rest of the world. And so there's a whole bunch of issues in trying to become, you know, a mobility company and solve business solutions versus just providing a product. We have to think through those and we have to become somewhat, you know, a knowledge uh, or thought leader in those areas. And that's what our clients expect. They don't expect us to back the truck up anymore. And so that's a big shift. It's a big shift for us. Exactly. And in an interview you did at NetApp Insight, you talk a bit about this, where you mention the ethical side of data for service and support is really intriguing for us. Can you expand a little bit more on what the ethical side of data can encompass? What are some of the things you think about? Yeah, the ethical side of data for me almost transcends into a soapbox. Uh, so just a, you know, a, a warning here, but I will ensure that I don't get on, on my soapbox. But to me, I believe that in order for many of these companies to become the company, the future company they envision, again, go back to automotive to mobility, there has to be an element of trust. And, you know, a mentor of mine, somebody I worked for and somebody I regard very highly, Mark Benioff, just said at, at Davos that trust has has to be paramount in anything that we do as technology companies, especially when it pertains to consumers. I don't think there's anything more important that if we are going to say we have a solution for somebody, be it a business, but for sure in a consumer, and that we 
you know, we need to use their data to provide them insights and predictability, which who wouldn't want that? They have to be able to trust us. They have to believe that we are not selling their data to somebody else for our own enrichment and our own monetization. And there are too many examples today, you know them and I know them, in the tech space of companies that have made a business model and a living out of stealing consumer data and using it for their own enrichment and monetization without the overt knowledge. And I say overt, I'm not talking fine print. I'm talking big, bold, you know we're selling your data without the overt and explicit permission of consumers. And if we're not careful over time, consumers are gonna say no more, buzz off. And so all these great solutions and these this great predictability that could occur through all the amazing technologies we have today, be it AI, machine learning, all of that will be for naught if we can't get our hands on the data we need to have the correlations that we need to provide the predictability that could so change people's lives because they don't trust us. They don't trust us with that data. So that to me is it's job one. And I, you know, I think ethical data management, I think we need to police ourselves in the tech industry and we need to call each other out and be very, very sharp on those that make a business and have a business model on non-ethical uh, data management. It's really paramount to to uh, everybody else being able to provide, you know, the great solutions that can change the lives of most consumers and most businesses. Exactly. Or also if data is your main core of your business, I'm thinking, for example, Equifax, don't leave security as a second thought or like really invest resources in, like you said, keeping that trust and sticking to what you promise the data is only going to be used for and so that there are no surprises. Hey, and I will tell you candidly, 100% honest, every single day in the job that I do for NetApp, we come across another company, Global 1000 company, that has no backups, that has not the proper, you know, protections from ransomware. And, you know, if I hearken back to the days of 08, 09, you know, 10, where companies felt like data was a liability instead of an asset, they felt like, you know, I'm not spending money on that liability, right? It's already bad enough. I have to spend the money to store it, et cetera. Why should I put all these layers of protection in and everything else? And I would tell you until there are uh, greater penalties, if you may say, for not having those protections, there are still companies, and this does fall in the ethical data area, there are still companies that wait until something happens, you know, to have to spend the money to remediate um, what should have been a forethought, not an afterthought. And I think that falls in the ethical data management uh, realm where, you know, companies need to think twice about that because over time, consumers are going to take back that data in particular, and they're going to say no more. And then we lose all of the the benefit of this technology that could give us uh, the insightfulness in, in how to live a longer and more prosperous life. Exactly. I know we're running a bit low on time, but I wanted to ask you a few more things. One of them is about you being president of the Michigan Council of Women in Technology. Can you explain what this nonprofit is doing? Sure. They were started by a group of women in the automotive industry, I might add, who looked around in the IT function and didn't see many of themselves. So many decades ago, call it two and a half decades ago, that organization, uh, their kind of main charter is trying to make Michigan the best place for women in technology. So make that state and the requisite companies that operate in that state 
really understand the value of diversity, uh, specifically of women in technology and what they can bring to bear. And so, you know, kind of that's their charter and mission. And it's an organization has almost a hundred companies now that sponsor it, that are very involved and focused and fixated on really having women have a seat at the table in the area of technology uh, in the state of Michigan. It's just a fantastic organization. And what are some of the things that you get to work on as being part of this group? So there's different, you may say, age groups of engagement. And so the number one thing that the organization has pivoted toward is engaging younger women earlier. So, you know, the hackathons, the boot camps, the robotics, all of those things for younger ladies. I mean, it's very proven, certainly not by MCWT, Michigan Council of Women in Technology, but in general, that if we engage with young ladies, potentially starting at the age of, you know, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, that if they get intrigued by and enthused about technology, they will carry that through, you know, high school and all the way through into a career in technology. And so we backed the, you know, backed our focus up a little bit to younger women, you know, younger ladies, you know, in grade school and really engaging with them and providing them in the summer. There are camps that MCWT runs that these young ladies can come to that are summer camps for a week to learn more about technology. There are robotics, hackathons, all kinds of different ways that young ladies can get involved. We ended up literally having uh, one of the young ladies that got involved some years back. This is probably now six years back in and around the Detroit area. Uh, She ended up being invited to the White House with a previous president Uh, showcasing the entire organization she built in her high school to get more young ladies in her high school involved in technology. She's now at Stanford on a full ride and just a really burgeoning young lady who got involved with MCWT and has continued on with her career in technology and I think is going to do some amazing things. It will be great to chat with her on the podcast also, so I'll I'll follow up with you on that to, to see if maybe she can come on the show and talk about that. The last thing I want to ask you is you've owned a 1938 diner for 12 years. What got you into owning a diner? I'm really curious about this. <laughs> it's actually been 15 years now, okay. sad to say, or, or good to say. So I got into this only as a diversification strategy on real estate. I found that years ago, my parents were heavily involved in real estate and I used that as an investment mechanism. And I had primarily residential, so I started buying commercial real estate. Happened I bought some commercial real estate in a redevelopment zone that had this 1938 diner on it. No interest in running a restaurant, but the more I realized um, how important that icon to the, the town that it was in how important that was to the people there, to from the attorneys, to the judges, to the, the plumber, to the electrician, to come in the morning as a way to come together regardless of social strata or anything else, share stories, um, enjoy each other's company and what have you. I got intrigued by continuing to grow and develop that thing. So through the years, we've you know kind of gutted the whole thing, brought it back to all its splendor with all the stainless in it, the whole nine yards. We've invested a ton in the place because we love it, because we feel it's important to the fabric of the community. And while I spend very little time there, I have a management team there that does an amazing job with it. And and candidly, I couldn't be more proud of that place. And during this time, just one more thing I want to mention is I read that revenues have grown 400%. What are some of the reasons why revenue 
grew? <laughs> one is technology. Uh, one is truly technology. We manage the business with a fine tooth comb. In the restaurant business, somebody said to me once, if you want to make a little bit of money in the restaurant business, start out with a lot of money and you'll end up with a little bit of money. And I think that's accurate, but um, because the margins are very small in the restaurant business. But we looked at how to infuse technology to have the, and this sounds crazy, but the bill of materials for each menu item and manage those down to an ingredient level to see if eggs, the price of eggs went up by 300%, then the, the, the margins would go down in the whole nine yards. So it's really run like a business. That's the best thing that I can say. And so one is technology. It's really run like a business. Number two is the king in that restaurant, of course, are our customers but the queen is our employees. So I've got employees in there that have been there over 20 years. The average tenure in the restaurant is seven years of the employee base that's unheard of and unthinkable in a restaurant and especially in the services industry today. But we take extraordinary care of our employees, really extraordinary care. We provide them health care. If they stay, you know, X period of time, they get paid vacations. And so, most of our investment other than the physical premise of the restaurant is in our employees and making sure that their lives get better and their lives are enriched by uh, by working there that's fantastic well cindy thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a pleasure talking to you uh it's been my pleasure i really appreciate the opportunity uh thanks so much and if there's anything else that uh, i can share with you at some point time in the future let me know sure thank you okay bye-bye 